0: Hello and welcome back to the Challenging Performance podcast. I'm Dan Leach-Wilkinson and this series highlights some of the themes in my free online book Challenging Performance, Classical Music Performance Norms and How to Escape Them which you'll find at challengingperformance.com This episode three focuses on teaching creativity. We saw in episode two how teaching classical performance intensively from childhood causes current ways of singing and playing to seem natural, inevitable and ideally musical and causes faithfulness to the composer to feel worshipful and to feel as if it offers the only route to creating moving and, when one is most perfectly faithful, transcendent performances. But we've also seen that there have been in the past, and will be in the future, other ways of being just as powerfully musical with these same scores. Which raises the possibility that we could choose to make different music with them now. And in that case, why would we not want to? Why would anyone want to prevent diversity? And who could have the right to, centuries after the composer's death? We know what we think of people in other walks of life who try to insist that there is only one proper way to behave, namely the way that they behave. And we know where that attitude leads in the treatment of others, other genders, other skin colours, other religions, people with other mental or physical abilities. Why is Western classical music exempt from the ideals of tolerance, diversity and freedom of expression which we value so highly in our culture. Shouldn't we be teaching and demonstrating exactly those values in performing the music that we like to think represents the Western world at its most expressive? It does seem extraordinary and troubling as soon as one really starts to think about it that classical music should be one of the most strictly constrained and policed practices in the West. So let's instead try to imagine a teaching practice in which creativity and difference were encouraged. Let's imagine how that might be for teachers and students and what the artistic outcomes might be like. In fact, we don't have to imagine it because it's already beginning to happen in several institutions. One of them is London's Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And to find out more, I've been speaking online to David Dolan, their professor of classical improvisation. Hang on a minute. Classical
1: improvisation?
0: I asked him if this wasn't still an unusual
1: job title. To that extent, so that there is a a centre which is working throughout all departments, both in undergraduate level and postgraduate level, As far as I know, it is the only one. But that doesn't mean that Guildhall is the only institution now to encourage and promote classical improvisation. David mentioned also
0: the Juilliard School, the Sibelius Academy, the Stuttgart Hochschule, the Royal Conservatory in The Hague, and for younger students, the Yehudi Menuhin School. Moreover, this isn't teaching students how to do Baroque ornamentation which comes under early music departments, nor, as David explains, is it simply teaching them how to improvise in a classical idiom. That's what they do, but
1: the effects are much wider. It's classical improvisation and its application in performance. So it's not improvisation per se full stop, but to take what people get, I hope, from that, and apply it in how they perform everything. Solo chamber music and how they deal with repertoire. I asked David
0: what were the benefits for students of getting comfortable at improvising.
1: The feedback from students, from on one hand, and what we colleagues observe on on the other hand, is overwhelmingly clear. It brings down walls of fear. Well-being is enhanced in a very very clear way. For some. Quite a few people, it was a difference between becoming a professional musician or not, because many, many, I'm talking about, I think, hundreds of musicians who told me stage fright and anxiety was such that I was not at all certain that I am going to do that as my way of life. Although hopefully I'm not that bad, the price was too heavy to pay and being able to improvise, entering a state of flow while performing, being able to create to have one's voice as opposed to obeying the policing of the politically correct way of performing made a difference. The results of David's work with Guildhall students
0: have been the subject of a couple of research studies by music psychologists comparing the experience of performers and audiences in making and listening to performances in two ways. First, a conventional, score-focused approach, concentrating on technical precision, timing coordination, aiming to produce the most convincing performance possible without taking any risks, what performers normally do, in other words. And secondly, a performance in which the players were asked to use a more improvisatory frame of mind, feeling free to be spontaneous, without worrying about technical perfection, using attitudes of mind taught in David's improvisation classes, but still playing the notes in the score. The results are rather remarkable. Listening back to their improvisatory performances later, the musicians noted a greater range and variety of timbre, dynamics and colours, a greater sense of connection and more convincing ensemble, a greater sense of trust both in their own musical instincts and between performers. Analysis of the performances showed freer use of timbre, longer phrasings, more responsiveness between performers and more risk-taking. The audience members, who only knew that the performances were going to be different but not how, and who had no idea which was which, rated the improvised version as more emotionally compelling and musically convincing than the standard version. And analysis of brain activity from performers and audience members indicated states of flow and enhanced empathy. Everyone, in other words, performers and audience, gained from a more relaxed improvisatory approach to performing scores by performers who are less worried than usual about perfection or about the scrutiny that's characteristic of gatekeepers. Since it's so obviously beneficial, I asked David about when to begin teaching this more improvisatory approach. In an ideal world, would you start this right from the beginning or would you introduce it at some particular point in a child's musical training?
1: I think that, as Yehudi Menuhin said, the earlier the better. And he said it apropos himself not being introduced to it as a child. And indeed, at the Guildhall and also in masterclasses when I do it uh, around the world, my number one job is to melt down the fear. The fear of making... Full of myself and the fear of cracking your own self confidence and self professional comfort. And so I start by playing games and I stay at that level as long as it takes. It may take days, weeks, even months. I sometimes waste, in inverted commas, a whole term until people begin to really enjoy it, until I hear genuine reliable laughters at what age indeed as as soon as possible even before a child can play the moment they can create gestures uh, to either you know on open strings to run from um, one string tim the ram, pam, pam, to the next string there is already an improvised musical gesture the fact that people at institutions like Guildhall and Juilliard and etc. start not only when they are adult, but when they are already having a certain amount of uh, self-image of almost prepared performer is a challenge. Yeah,
0: must be very disconcerting for them to feel like beginners again.
1: Yes, but once they connect with the playfulness of it, it, with very, very few exceptions turning upside down. Um, it, it's real burst of joy. And then we can start working. That's the honeymoon. And then we can start the real thing. Of course, improvising professionally is not without its dangers. Risk-taking
0: is still risk-taking, as David knows very well.
1: I'm thinking of a, a very big concert in Melbourne, in Australia, where I was asked before the performance to explain a bit what's going on, and it was a Mozart concerto K415 with a chamber ensemble, and I said that the cadenzas will be improvised, and hopefully I will finish the cadenza with the string players. But, you know, it's not guaranteed, and everybody had a great laugh. And I played the concerto, and I improvised the r- repeats and the eingangs, and, and the cadenza, I thought, when really well and i prepared for the end of it for landing but then i couldn't resist having another round and i prepared it but not early enough apparently because the the ensemble did come in when i took off and i thought how embarrassed how horribly embarrassing but the response of the audience was a laughter of the warm kind a, a, a laughter which was obviously embracing and not laughing at you. And so I I had another, you know, flight and landed again. And, and then I, I, of course, told them, you see, I didn't mean to demonstrate what I told you that, but that can happen. And we did it again. And it all ended very well. But what was interesting or, or powerful was after the concert, people came and many, I mean, it was really uh, clearly the, the feeling of most of the audience. They said, We owe you a huge thank you, A, because of the music, B, and B is even stronger than A, because of the emotional, powerful experience we had. We never before in a classical music concert felt so connected with what's going on so much with the musicians, not only me, also my string partners. Partly what saved the day there was
0: David's willingness to communicate with the audience. And we could do with a lot more of this, breaking down the invisible but impenetrable barrier
1: that's normally there between the hall and the stage. I encourage all my students, as I do myself, to talk with their audiences, including their fear. You know, if they are going to improvise on a theme and they are going to try to make a fugue at the end, especially if they have a partner, uh, good luck. (laughs) And sometimes the luck is not so good right. And I begin to, when I feel the audience is of the right energy, I begin to not avoid doing that. Even if I'm not sure that, you know, I will finish where I hope to finish. That's also a part of the answer to your question. What can make the difference to loosen up or to make the relation between us and audience more authentic, more real, more human to human? Let's hear an example of David improvising here together with the cellist Thomas Carroll,
0: as they invent a prelude to the first of Schumann's Fantasierstücke, Now, here we are back in Schumann's score. I asked David how improvising a prelude like this
1: changes the way they think about playing the score. What we did in the prelude influenced hugely how we played the text. And we tried it, we experimented a lot with it to play it as is. And then to perform it following preludes and interludes, it's a totally different performance. In many performances, we actually change passages in the text. And that is clearly a momentum that is generated by the improvisation of the prelude.
0: Right. And you, you do that because you're kind of in the zone? And yes, other's... yes.
1: In the zone that the prelude created for us and that we throw at each other because it's never twice the same. And we do agree that we don't uh, play it carefully. So sometimes I throw on, on, on Thomas modulations that came from I have no idea where. And then when we came to Schumann's text, in stronger moments of harmonic shifts, I am sure that I resolved tensions going back to harmonic resolution through different notes. I I am not trying to say that, look, maybe one day if I'm lucky, I will come with a better version than Schumann's. That's not what I'm trying to say I offer the audience. I offer the audience the sharing of throwing myself to the fire in real time with them present. If I am changing from the Schumann's text, I think that very thorough musicologists analyzing both will find a way of proving that Schumann's is better, which is fine. I, it's not the point. <laughs> the point is the event in real time, the living sharing of the recreating uh, and not reproducing, recreating the, the musical event. Like a great actor, doing a great monologue and meaning it and really Alas Stanislavsky, leaving every second of it that is for me the, the the main thing so there's a really
0: important distinction here between reproducing a performance the performance we all expect as vividly as possible but otherwise without surprises and recreating a piece as if one didn't know it like the back of one's hand, as if this were the first time this music had ever sounded, discovering it as one performs. Surely it's this that one hopes to experience when one goes to a concert. This is why we need classical musicians to bring improvisation and the improvisatory frame of mind that it enables back into the performance of all kinds of scores. This is what conservatoires, music schools, private lessons should be teaching as an absolutely fundamental part of what they're there to do. It's not without financial costs, and I asked David finally about these. I'm wondering where the funding is going to come from. Good question. I do a funding model can accommodate.
1: But you know, what, what you've just said that you know and I know, for most people it would sound like a mistake. If you improvise you need less rehearsal. And of course it's the opposite. So the truth is that I've done it so far only with people who are so devoted and who are so enthusiastic about it, they are willing to rehearse more than they do for a normal concert. What you saw with uh, Thomas Carroll, was the result of rehearsing for a year whenever we could. We didn't put something in the diary that had to be invoiced. When when we met, when we gave master classes at the same place, or when we were in the same festival, we took some time to. So so we developed a common bag of associations, but that was no, no there was no extra payment for that. <laughs> So yes, when I said before that programmers and promoters and the you know, institutionalized part of the system wants to encourage it more, it means allowing a bit more for that also on the financial level. It's a lot to do with what you treat as a work that you do to become more of what you want to become. But yes, it means more preparation. I agree. So this isn't cost-free. On the other hand,
0: the benefits for performers in job satisfaction and mental well-being and – and this is really the point for promoters – the benefits for audiences in more involving music-making are more than enough to cause us to think much more seriously than before about how to bring improvisation and a creative approach to music-making back into classical performance.